the title for the message this morning is God's Blueprint for Marriage. God's Blueprint for Marriage. If you're keeping track of where we are in our text in Matthew, the very next two verses that we would come to are chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And those two verses deal with the sanctity of marriage. Those two verses deal with the sacredness of marriage. You don't have to look very far to find that marriage is under attack in the world in which we live. That is one of the areas in which Satan loves to meddle. It's one of the areas in which Satan loves to drive a wedge. And so instead of just at a, at a passing glance dealing with those two verses, which specifically deal with marriage and divorce, I thought that it was important that we, along with the rest of our leadership, thought that it was important that we back up a little bit and set a foundation for marriage. What does God's word have to say about the institution of marriage? I mean, God's word is replete uh, with, with passages and texts and wisdom for the marriage relationship. And so instead of just treating it in one week and then moving on, we're going to deal with Matthew 5, 31 and 32. We're going to deal with it in four weeks. As a matter of fact, it'll be the last passage in this four-week mini-series that we're dealing with on marriage that we will deal with. Here's a roadmap for where we're going. This morning, I'm going to, by God's grace, attempt to exposit for you, to shine light on, to illuminate God's blueprint for marriage, God's foundation for marriage, which is found for us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Next Sunday, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the fact that marriage is the relationship the greatest relationship that God uses in our sanctification process. And we want to talk about being committed to God's purposes for our marriage, namely uh, being committed to the process of sanctification through marriage. Week three, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about how, how do we handle it as believers when marriage is difficult? Because even a marriage between two Christians is a marriage between two sinners, and when you put two sinners in close proximity, it's not very long before sparks begin to fly. And so how do we deal with that? Uh, how are we to grow and to change? How are we to put on and put off? How are we to bear more resemblance to Jesus as a result of committing to God's purposes in marriage, namely our sanctification? But how do we deal with it when the rubber meets the road? When marriage gets tough, and it does for every single one of us, the honeymoon ends at some time. For some of us it's longer, for some of us it's shorter, but the honeymoon ends uh, at some point, and the realities of marriage begin to set in. And then we'll deal fourth week with our text in Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, in a message that I have entitled, Faithful Till the End. So that gives you kind of a roadmap of where we're heading over the next handful of weeks. Before we launch into our text here, let me just uh, share with you some good resources. I hate to give them to you at the end, because I'd encourage you to buy these resources and be reading them even as we're teaching uh, but here are just uh, a handful of good resources for you to read on the issue of marriage. Number one, how to act right when your spouse acts wrong. How to act right when your spouse acts wrong. Leslie Vernick. This is an excellent book. And it's even a great book if you are not married because the principles contained in here are how do you act right when your neighbor doesn't act right? How do you act right when your siblings don't act right? How do you act right when your friends don't act right? So it's a great book for anyone, married or not, uh, but How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong is an excellent book. John Piper's small book, Moment, This Momentary Marriage. It's excellent. You can probably read it in one or two sittings. Those are good books, right? John Piper's This Momentary Marriage. 
I also want to commend to you Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do. When Sinners Say I Do. This is an excellent book. Paul David Tripp's book, What Did You Expect?, is an excellent book as well. What did you expect? He deals with expectations in marriage. Seems like so often the reason that sparks fly is because we have expectations, we place expectations on marriage uh, that are not God's intentions for marriage. And so we get frustrated uh, and we begin to act out. What did you expect? Paul Tripp is an excellent book there. And then for those of you that are not yet married, let me commend to you a book that is titled exactly that, Not Yet Married. Uh, The subtitle here is The Pursuit of Joy in Singleness and Dating. I have not read this in its entirety. I just got it this week, but it is excellent thus far. Everything that I have read, I would commend to you if you are single. Excellent, excellent book about uh, pursuing joy in Christ in singleness. So just a few resources for you there uh, as we wade through this topic over the next four weeks. Let me ask you this question, friends. You like puzzles? A few hands went up there. You like puzzles? Imagine for a moment that you've just acquired a box containing a massive 5,000-piece puzzle. Now, imagine a married couple given the box and locked in a room together until they were able to complete the puzzle without the box top. You see, apart from the box top, the couple wouldn't have the faintest idea of what the completed puzzle was supposed to look like. They have a bunch of individual pieces, but they have no picture to help them assemble those pieces correctly. I think frustrating would probably be an understatement. Such a scenario would bring most couples to the brink of insanity. The late Ruth Bell Graham, the wife of evangelist Billy Graham, was once asked if she ever contemplated divorcing her husband. She replied, divorce? No. Murder? Yes. You see, unfortunately, many marriages are a lot like this, though. They have all the pieces strewn out on the table, spouses, children, work, finances, communication, intimacy, conflict, in-laws, friends, church. We could go on and on and on. They have all the pieces laying out on the table, but no picture that shows how the pieces are supposed to be fitted together correctly. No picture that shows the beauty of the puzzle's design the way it was intended to be pieced together. Having all the pieces but no clear instruction has caused the ship of many marriages to run aground at best and some to even sink in the waters of delusionment, frustration, resentment, bitterness, hard-heartedness, isolation, separation. Too many marriages share the shell of marriage without the substance that God has intended. But God hasn't left us to try to figure out how to assemble our marriages on our own. He's, by his goodness and by his grace, given us a blueprint contained for us right here in the first book of the Bible. In the first few pages, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, God's given us the box top, so to speak, the blueprint, so that we know how marriage, according to the designer, is supposed to look and function. We don't have to go it alone. We don't have to drown in frustration trying to frantically figure it all out. God's told us how our marriages should look and how they should function. But many, many individuals, many a spouse has tried to put all the pieces together without ever looking at the box top. With that said, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read our text.
Moses is the one recording our words this morning. Pinning God's blueprint for marriage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, he pens the following words. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, or as a result, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's infallible, inspired, authoritative word. You may be seated. The first thing that I want to make clear this morning on the onset is that God is the designer of marriage. God is the author of marriage. God is the architect of marriage. God is the builder of marriage. Marriage resided first in God's mind before it was ever a thought in man's mind. As a matter of fact, I would say that Adam nor Eve are the main character in our text for this morning. God is. God is the main text, or the main Uh, actor, the main figure in our text for this morning. He designed marriage, and so he has authority over it. You know, friends, you don't have to search long or hard to find again that marriage is under attack. Unfettered from any source of authority, marriage will always follow the moral landslide, the moral morass of culture. But the design and the meaning for marriage, they're not up for grabs. No matter what the courts may decree or society may permit when it comes to marriage, God had the first word on marriage, and you can rest assured he'll have the last word when it comes to marriage. God is the author of marriage. He created the marriage program, so to speak. He wrote the operating manual, and he's faithful to explain it. He's the only reliable and trustworthy authority on the subject of marriage. Again, he is its inventor. He knows how it works, and he knows how to make it last. Endure. God's intention for marriage is this, friends. One woman, one man, would become one flesh for one lifetime. One man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. That's God's intention. That's God's design for marriage. And so you ask yourself, well, why again Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is the most foundational text in the Bible as it pertains to marriage. Again, there are other passages in the Bible, obviously, that deal with the subject of marriage. But the text you have in front of you this morning is the most foundational text as it pertains to marriages. Matter of fact, when the Pharisees were arguing back and forth over what the law of Moses says concerning the marriage relationship and concerning the dissolving of the marriage relationship, do you know where Jesus took them? Right back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Marriage is the crowning blessing of God's goodness to man in the original creation. And since this is the case, it should be no surprise to us that this is precisely the arena in which Satan attacks 
when he comes to tempt the first couple in the garden. And it shouldn't surprise us today that this is still Satan's first base of attack against those who are united together in marriage, to attack them precisely at the point of God's greatest blessing to them. I think there are four overarching designs for marriage that we see in our text for this morning. We'll walk through them together. Number one, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do so, is this. God designed marriage for companionship. God designed marriage for companionship. You see, at the close of the sixth day of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, closes chapter 1, God surveyed all that he had made, and his conclusion at the end was, it is very good. But here in chapter 2, just 18 verses later, God says that there's something in his wonderful creation that is not good. Well, that which is not good is that man that he had created, Adam, was alone. You see, even in paradise, when it was God's intention to create man, it was not God's intention to leave him in solitude. God not only identified what was lacking, but he also solved the problem by bringing Adam a helper suitable, by bringing him a corresponding mate. Look back at the text. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And so God takes the initiative here. I will make for him. God's the designer of marriage. I will make for him a helper fit for him. And then the narrative goes on. Now out of the ground, the Lord God made every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Friends, Adam was the first king. You look at Eden from, from a biblical theological perspective, and Eden was the first temple. Eden was the first temple. Adam was the first king. He was the first priest. He was the first one to exercise dominion. The fact that God brought the animals to Adam and that Adam would place a name upon them is a picture of Adam's dominion. It's a picture of Adam's kingship, a picture of Adam's authority over the created realm. The text goes on and it says, And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. I think that Adam had to be an incredibly intelligent individual. The text doesn't say that Adam deliberated on what he was going to name it, or uh, I might name it that. Every single animal was paraded before Adam, and Adam gave that animal its name. The text goes on and says, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so we go back and we remember that God said, I will. I will make a helper fit for him. Uh, The term there is ezer konegdo, helper fit. Think about the word helper for just a moment. Helper doesn't mean inferior. Helper doesn't mean lesser. God doesn't fashion and bring a glorified maid to Adam. It's It's not what God means when he says, I'll create for him a helper. A helper in this context means one who supplies what is lacking in another person. You see, God created Adam's wife. God created Eve to do what Adam could not do on his own. In other words, to fill up what was lacking in his solitude. And that points us to an amazing truth in marriage. And that amazing truth is this. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The whole is greater in marriage than the sum of the parts. Solomon, who had much wisdom, much to say as it pertains to the marriage relationship, said it this way, two are better than one 
for they have a good reward for their labor or a good return for their work. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You see, the word helper, it speaks of both the role and the dignity of a woman in marriage. Far from being a demeaning term, helper is actually oftentimes used to describe the character of God in Scripture. Let me give you a few of those places. Psalm 33, verse 20. The psalmist says, Oh, my, my soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. Same exact word, Azair. He's our help and our shield. Psalm 46, 1, we're reminded that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of need. Psalm 70, verse 5, David says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, God. You are my help and my deliverer. In Psalm 121, one of my favorite passages, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my Azair, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You see, the picture here is that of a wife coming to aid and rescue her husband. Amen, ladies? Lord knows we need it. Lord knows we need it. Ladies, remember when you feel like your labors go unnoticed? Remember that you have dignity. Remember that you have value. Remember that you have worth as one who possesses a very unique God-given role to come alongside your husband and to be a picture for him of God's divine help to him. What a picture. What a picture. When you come alongside your husband as his helper, you image forth, you picture Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, coming and being our very present help in time of need. What a dignified role you have, wives. And as husbands, myself included, I encourage you to tell your wife. And when I say tell your wife, that means with words. Tell your wife. Tell her often how much she helps you. Tell her, tell her how helpful she is to you, how she provides for you and your family in innumerable ways. Encourage her as your helper. God says, I will give you an Azair, a helper. But then he says, I'll give you an Azair, a helper, connecto, fit for or suitable for. The Hebrew word there for fit or suitable, it has the idea of counterpart or opposite or coordinating or the one next to. It means something or someone that fits perfectly. Think about a piece of paper torn in half. Both pieces fit back together perfectly. You see, Adam needs a God-given strong helper who will be right there for him, providing exactly what he needs for companionship. He needs a life mate, someone to stand by his side and to help him fulfill his God-given role and responsibilities. Not a one of us is the total package, men. God made us that way. What Adam lacked, his wife supplied. Likewise, what Eve lacked, Adam supplied. As a unit, a husband and wife, they complement each other. That's what it means to have a corresponding counterpart. It's what it means to have a helper fit or a helper suitable. You see, Eve was like Adam in the fact that she shared in the dignity of being made in the image of God. A husband and a wife are absolutely equal in dignity and value and in worth as being created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. But there is a difference. There is a unique God-given and designed difference in their role and in their function. 
Male and female, husband and wife, they're equal in substance, but they're uniquely different and complementary by design in role. This is where we get the, the term complementarian. We would be complementarian as a church. It means that we see absolute equality of dignity and value between male and female, husband and wife, but we see a unique God-given design difference in role and function. Not lesser, different. Designed. By God, who knows how marriage works and knows how to make it last. You see, there's a design order that God created and instilled into the marriage relationship that mirrors, as a matter of fact, the order that we see within the triune Godhead. Have you ever considered that? I mean, within the triune Godhead, we see order. Even with Jesus, from a theological perspective, we see what oftentimes theologians refer to as a divine subordination I mean, Jesus subjected himself to his father's will. He was submissive to his father. Was he any less God? Absolutely not. That would be heresy to say so. But he did willingly and voluntarily subordinate himself to the father. Even even in, in creation and even in salvation, we see that there are differing or distinctive roles that, that each of the members of the triune Godhead play. I mean, God is the author of salvation. Jesus secured it on the cross. The Holy Spirit applies it in our hearts. Differing roles in our marriages are meant to mirror that. Equality in substance. Unique difference in role and in function. Note that Eve is made. A better word there would be built. While Adam was asleep means that he had nothing to do other than supply the raw materials for her creation. God didn't ask for Adam's input. He wasn't taking orders based on criteria in Adam's mind. God, the omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe, knew exactly what Adam needed, and he put him to sleep and fashioned it and brought her to him. What do we learn here, fellas? We learn that God doesn't need our help when it comes to designing a helper suitable for us. Be thankful for the grace that God has bestowed upon your life and the wife you have. He who finds a wife finds a good, good thing, Scripture tells us. God designed marriage, and we could say much, much more here for companionship. Number two on your outline. We see from the text that God designed marriage for unity. God designed marriage for unity. I'm going to spend the significant portion of our time right here. I think this is probably one of the most important points in the text. God designed marriage for unity. Look at verse 24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. First thing I want you to notice is that there is to be a leaving of father and mother. This speaks to the primacy of the marriage relationship. There is to be a leaving of father and mother. The word leave there, it's the Hebrew word azav. It means to loosen or to relinquish or to forsake or to refuse. Basically, it means to cut ties. When God tells us that man shall leave his father and mother, what he's basically telling us is that a man shall cut ties 
with his family. And subsequently, a new wife, a bride, shall cut ties with her family. It's God's plan that a man and subsequently his wife should separate themselves from their parents so that they can pursue oneness in their new marriage. We're to leave our parents emotionally, physically, financially, in order to form a new family unit with our spouse. There's to be a leaving. This means that you put your spouse's need above all others. After God, husbands, your wife comes first. Her needs come first. No one else, not children, not family, not in-laws, not friends. Your wife comes first. Ladies, after God, your husband comes first. All other allegiances are secondary at best. This doesn't mean that the relationship of parent-child is over, but it does mean that it's no longer the primary relationship. Husbands, your wife is primary. Wives, your husband is primary. Do you treat each other that way? Do you think about each other that way? Do you speak to one another that way? Do you pray for one another in that fashion? Do you speak to others about your spouse that way? Your spouse is primary. There's to be a leaving and a forsaking all other allegiances that you may pursue oneness with your spouse. And that doesn't change if the Lord is so gracious to grow your family with children. I can't tell you over the years of pastoral ministry and counseling how I have seen a putting the main emphasis on children create damage in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Are we to love our children dearly? Absolutely. Would I give my life for my children in a heartbeat without thinking about it? But my children aren't primary. My wife is. My wife is. Every time I marry a young couple, I make this known to the bride and the groom. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at a young couple that I married not too long ago sitting right back there. And I stand at the altar with that young couple, and I step aside from them just a second, and I look their mamas and their daddies square in the eyes. And I say something to this effect. You understand that this young man, he'll always be your son. He'll never stop being your son, but his primary role in life changes right now. And that is because his primary role in life is to become husband to this young lady. You get that, moms and dads? And I step to the other side, and I look brides, mom and dad, in the eyes, and I say, listen, she'll always be your little baby. She'll always be your princess. But today, her primary role in life changes, and she becomes husband to this young man. Now, young man, young woman, do you understand the implications of leaving father and mother so that you can pursue oneness in your marriage. You get that. Do you understand that? Do you understand how important that is? Marriage doesn't function like it should if a husband doesn't cut ties with his parents and he doesn't take leadership and he doesn't take responsibility for his new family. He needs to work his own job. He needs to pay his own bills. He needs to support his own family. 
Does that mean that there aren't times where help isn't necessary? It doesn't. But on the whole, on the whole, it means that we've cut ties. Likewise, marriage doesn't function like it should. If a wife runs home to mom and dad and doesn't turn inward and deal with issues and challenges and conflicts and difficulties in marriage with her husband first, to leave means that you commit to turning to each other before you turn to anyone else. And the second thing that we see here from the text is that we're told to hold fast. If leave, if leave signals us to think about the primary relationship, the primacy of the marriage relationship, then the, the words hold fast then should tell us something about the permanence of marriage. The word hold fast, it's the Hebrew word debak, and it means to cling to, to adhere to, to catch, or to follow closely. Most clearly, it means to be inseparably joined. When something is glued together, it cannot be separated without damaging one or both of the parts. Such is the case in marriage. Such is the case in marriage. You see, leaving is normally a one-time event, but holding fast Holding fast is the work of a lifetime, and it takes grit, and it takes grace. Oh, that God would give us the grit to hold fast in our marriages. Oh, that he would give us the grace to see past the moment and to see the picture that it images. Holding fast is the work of a lifetime. You see, if we're honest, getting married is pretty easy. A few dollars on a location and you can get married. Staying married in a fallen world, that's what's difficult. Getting married is real easy. You can go downtown and get married today. Staying married is difficult in a Genesis 3 fallen world. But friends, let me remind you that God's grace is sufficient. It it superabounds for every marriage woe. There is no insurmountable obstacle in marriage that cannot be overcome if two individuals are willing to humble themselves before God and each other, are willing to consider the interest of others before themselves, and to remember that the words, I do, meant I forever will. And be committed to applying the grace of the gospel to their marriage. You see, two individuals can hold fast to each other and they can weather any storm if they're willing to commit to honoring Christ in their marriage and to apply the gospel to their sinful shortcomings. Why why did God create marriage? Yes, God created marriage, we have already said, for companionship. Yes, God created marriage for, for unity. That there would be a new, a new primary relationship. That there would be a new permanent relationship. But, but even greater than that, why did God create? Why did God give the gift of marriage? Well, the Bible tells us that God gave the gift of marriage to display his own glory. That's why God gave the gift of marriage. God's glory is the ultimate goal of your marriage. Have you actually ever considered that marriage exists more for God than it does for you and for me and for your spouse? Marriage exists more for God than it does for you. 
Marriage wasn't just invented by God, but it belongs to God. Paul reminds us, and we sang about this this morning in one of our worship songs. Paul reminds us that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, including marriage, were created through him and for him. Paul says it again in Romans chapter 11, verse 16, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Why did God give you the gift of marriage? He did so to display his own glory, first and foremost. This means that marriage isn't first about you. God is the most important person in your marriage. God is the most important person in your marriage. And there are difficulties innumerable that rise to the surface when that is not the case. When that is not the case. And I wonder if our attitudes and our actions and our words in marriage might be different if we remembered that marriage is first and foremost about God. Well, how does marriage glorify God? Marriage glorifies God in many ways, but preeminently because marriage is the relationship that God designed to be a picture, a grand display of his covenant-keeping love. And Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 when he speaks of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, that's a, a great marriage passage there in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, quoting Genesis 2.24, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds, he adds some commentary here. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, this is the most profound thing that could have ever been said about marriage. You remember at the beginning of the message that I said that Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, are the most foundational words concerning marriage. And that is true. But Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, they are certainly the most profound words concerning marriage. I mean, what Paul is saying is that when God created man and woman in the beginning and he brought them into the union of marriage, he was patterning that marriage after the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. Now, you get the implications of that? That means before Adam and before Eve, before the fall, Before God spoke anything else into creation in the eternal mind of God, because of his covenant faithfulness, he designed marriage after the very relationship that displays his covenant love towards us in Christ. Before man was ever created, that picture existed. How do we know that? Because we look at verses in the Bible that say Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. And so in the eternal omnipotent mind of God, before Adam, before Eve, before any part of creation was ever spoken into existence, the picture of marriage was patterned off of the relationship, the covenant-keeping relationship that Christ has with his church. You see, on a small and imperfect scale, God has designed your marriage such that it reflects the glory of his never-ending, never-lessening, all-satisfying, unbreakable, unshakable covenant love. The reason God gave you a wife or the reason that God gave you a husband wasn't primarily for your companionship. It wasn't primarily for your happiness. It wasn't, it wasn't primarily for your comfort. It was to set the incomprehensible love of God on display for the whole wide world to see. 
that is the highest purpose of marriage. And knowing that truth and that reality ought to cause us as believers to hold marriage in such high regard. If you're here this morning and you're not married, pray for those who are married. Pray that they would hold marriage in high esteem and in high regard. Pray that they would be faithful to their covenant just as God is faithful to his covenant with us. His never-ending, never-lessening, unbreakable, unshakable covenant love. Pray that. Pray that for married couples if you're single. Pray that that would characterize your marriage one day if you're yet to be married. Oh, that we would hold marriage in high regard because of what it is patterned after. Because of what it displays. Think about this for a minute. That being true, what that means is that marriage isn't even primarily about staying in love. Marriage isn't even primarily about staying in love. It's about being faithful to keeping a covenant. That's what it's primarily about. I mean, love waxes and wanes. If we, if, we, if, we, if we base marriage on love, which is an integral component, obviously, of marriage, but if we base marriage on love, we will live married life like a roller coaster. I mean, there are days, there are days, in all reality, not a joke, that my wife would sell me for a snicker bar. Like free on Craigslist, come and get him, sitting out by the mailbox. Must be gone by 5 p.m. We're going to have a conversation over this over lunch. (laughs) But we can't base marriage on love. And we don't stay married primarily because we're in love or because we're not in love. We stay married because we keep covenant. Because it's a picture of our covenant-keeping God. That's why we stay married. That's the foundation. If you're ever tempted to jump ship on your marriage, remember that staying married is a glorious picture of the fact that Jesus Christ keeps his covenant with me and he'll never be faithless. And You and I have been called to represent that, to be a living picture of that to the world. You see how marriage isn't primarily about you? Marriage is primarily about God. Adam's not the main character of this text. Eve's not the main character of the text. All the critters that came before Adam, they're not the main characters of the text. God is the main character of the text. God is the main character of every text in your Bible, by the way. Single people, as you, by God's grace, prepare for marriage one day, remember that, again, your marriage... Your future marriage, it's not primarily about your happiness. It's not primarily about your comfort. It's not primarily about your security. It's not primarily about your image, whether I'm married or I'm not married. Marriage is about covenant keeping. Young people, like young people, let me get your ears real quick. You, even you, 
five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, know and know now that marriage is about covenant keeping. It's not about looking pretty. It's not about marrying the one with the most. It's not about your happiness or comfort. Know now. Know now. The world is not going to teach you that. Know now that marriage is about covenant keeping. And if God's calling you to be married one day, that's what he's calling you to do. So be careful how you date then. Be careful how you court. I think that one of the reasons that we experience so much tragedy in the dissolving of marriages is because before we're ever married, we just practice many, M-I-N-I, many marriages and many divorces. And then we get married and we just keep practicing. Practice makes perfect. Number three, God designed marriage for intimacy. Look at verse 24, the back half of it. It says, and the two shall become one flesh. One pastor said, I think this is great, he said the marriage relationship, it's not the federation of two sovereign states, but it's a union. It's a union. Just as God is three in one, so two persons become one in marriage. You see, of all the relationships this side of eternity, there is not a single other relationship that is termed or defined in terms as a one flesh relationship other than marriage. Children to parents, that relationship is incredibly strong, but it's not termed a one flesh relationship. Sibling relationships can be incredibly tight, that bond can be inseparable. But that relationship is not termed a one flesh relationship. That term is given to the institution of marriage alone. Now, to become one flesh, it starts with the sexual relationship in marriage. But one flesh means more than intimacy. It doesn't mean less than that, but it means more than that. You see, out of the physical union in marriage comes a profound fusion of two hearts, two minds, two bodies, two personalities, until they're they're so uh, interconnected, so intertwined, that it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins. Which actually goes back to the word uh, hold fast. It means to be glued together. You can think of a tapestry or two pieces of fabric that that are woven together such that you can't see where one ends and the other begins. That's what it means to be one flesh to be united in such a way that you cannot see where there was ever a division or a separation. In marriage, the most important word, let me encourage you here, is ours. Not mine. Not yours. But ours. We're one flesh. We should also note that God only created One Eve for Adam. Look at your Bible there. There's only one. There wasn't to be any other. She was the one. She was the only. Married men, you are called by God to be a one-woman kind of man. Not only in your actions, but also in your thoughts and also in your heart. Married ladies, let me get your attention. You are called to be a one-man kind of woman. Not only in your actions, but also in your heart. Also in your desires. Also in your mind. Husbands, when you stood at the altar and said, I do to your wife, what you were saying is, I don't to every other woman on the face of the planet. 
Likewise, wives, when you stood at the altar and you said, I do, what you said is, I don't, to every other man on the face of the planet. One flesh, one man, one woman, one lifetime. It's what it means when we get married and we say, we repeat the words after the pastor, forsaking all others. Forsaking all others, I commit myself to you. Friends, if you ever want to know if you're married to the right person, pull out your marriage license and look at the name on it. If you ever want to know if you're married to the right person, look at the name that is written or stamped on your marriage license. That's the right person. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't marriages that are fraught with difficulty. Marriage is the union of two sinners. But it does mean that by God's grace, there is no insurmountable woe. Someone once asked Henry Ford, the maker of the Model T, to explain the secret of a good marriage. He replied, it's the same formula as making a successful car. Stick to one model. Stick to one model. God designed marriage for intimacy. Enjoy the wife of your youth and only the wife of your youth. Number four, and we'll be very quick here. God designed marriage for transparency. In verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. You see, our marriages should be marked by transparency and by innocence. You see, if we're seeking to honor Christ and to honor our spouse in our marriages, then we should have nothing to hide and nothing to be ashamed of. You see, it's sin that brings shame. And again, every marriage is the union of two sinners. But in marriage, a part of the original transparency that was seen in the garden can be regained. You see, in the security of a lifetime commitment, a husband and a wife can relax and they can feel comfortable together as slowly the walls begin to come down. Now, it takes the work of decades. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes two sinners who are willing to fix their eyes on Jesus and work at it. Husbands, are you working on becoming the man that God has called you to be? I didn't ask if you had a laundry list of ways your wife can grow. Are you working on becoming the kind of man that God has called you to be? Ladies, are you working on becoming the kind of woman, the kind of wife that God has called you to be? If not, what ends up happening is we begin to attack people instead of problems. We begin to go at each other in marriage. This is what it means at a deep level to be naked and not ashamed. It means that the walls can come down, transparency can be there, there's nothing to hide, there is no shame. Again, that doesn't happen overnight, it takes the work of decades. But it, it does happen, it can happen by God's grace. And I'll tell you this, marriage is intended and designed by God to become better over time. Not just that you would survive, but that you'd thrive. 
to be growing and changing. That that picture of Jesus Christ and his love for the church that, that began at the altar the day that you, that you made a, a covenant vow to your spouse would become even more visible and even brighter and even clearer to the world that you live in as you grow and change and bear fruit. That is God's intention. Let me close with this final super quick thought. Friends, it takes three for the two to become one. It takes three for the two to become one. I tell every couple that I counsel and marry that. Every relational tension in Christian marriage can ultimately be traced back to the fact that one or both spouses at least momentarily have taken their eyes off Jesus and have inordinately placed them on their selves or on their spouse. And when we take our eyes off Jesus, self runs rampant.